Well, amen and good morning as well to you. And yeah, by the way, baptism again. Um, come on out right after second service. We'll be there as early as 12.30, but uh, anytime between 12.30 and 3, the grill will still be hot and we'll be there beyond that as well. So look forward to having you out there for that. First Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. You believe that? We're on chapter 11. I mean, we are just humming through this book. Before you know it, we'll be in chapter 12 one of these days. And uh, as we, you know, just speed through the New Testament. But the, there is some question, some discussion from scholars as to whether verse 1 of chapter 11 belongs in chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, or whether it belongs in the beginning of of chapter 11. I don't really think it makes any difference either way because it seems to flow perfectly with Paul's ongoing thought over these last few chapters. So let me explain what I mean as we set the stage for our study this morning by reading verse 1 of chapter 11 where he says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And that, by the way, is the best way to teach someone. It's the best way. It's the hardest way to teach someone. I mean, amidst a section here that we're going to look at this morning that talks about things like whether or not women in Corinth should wear a head covering while praying and prophesying. And for that matter, God's order seen in creation in the church and in the home, and for that matter, a chapter in which the predominant message is that of submission, I find this verse right here to be the hardest verse uh, to teach personally. Parents are smart enough today to not say what we all heard when we were kids, which is do as I say, not as I do. But we do that sometimes, parents, grandparents, aunt, uncle, pastor, by the way that we live our lives. We, in essence, live a certain way, but we tell our kids to live a different way than sometimes the way that we live our lives. And here is Paul, virtually different than, well, any other teacher that you've ever known who says, imitate me. You know, that's really kind of the theme verse for our Wednesday night discipleship groups here that take place at church. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. It could be rendered also, Imitate me as I and only as I imitate Christ. And from that vantage point, boy, there's just about a little something in just about everybody in the church body that's imitatable by which they imitate Christ. It's something for us to pick up on. But contextually here, what is it in Jesus Christ that Paul sought to imitate in his own life and seeks that we would imitate from watching his life. And here it is. Are you ready? That's what we're going to talk about this morning, and that is submission. Because if Jesus Christ, again, in talking about what we've been talking about these past few chapters, was always concerned about his freedom, only concerned about his liberty, if he clinged to his rights like we as human beings do, well, then there would be no cross of Christ, and we'd all still be in our Sins. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm often asked about the role of women in the home and in the church. It's one of the most common questions that I get. 
And a lot of people think it's a pretty controversial issue. I don't think it's a very controversial issue at all. A lot of people think it's a tough issue. Actually, I think we've uh, taught on much more tough subjects than this. Some people will look at the Bible and they say, well, you know, the Bible's a little bit outdated and it's relevant to the culture in which they were living. And even go so far as to say that the Apostle Paul or God himself is chauvinistic. But the fact of the matter is the exact opposite is true. The Greek and the Roman culture at the time of Christ and at the time of the Apostle Paul, I mean, women had no rights. They were deemed personal property. And Christianity has always been the great liberator of women and of society as a whole. I mean, you take bond servants. Even though Paul never encouraged you know, bond servants to march on Capitol Hill to change the customs of the day, he did encourage them, hey, if you're a slave, you be the best slave that you can be so that you can be the best witness for Christ that you can possibly be. And so as Christianity then pervaded the Roman Empire over time, slavery ceased within the Roman Empire because of the impact that that was having on society. And the same thing is true of women. The way that women were treated, the role of women at the time that Jesus shows up on the scene was very different than the way that Jesus treated it and interacted with women, if you noticed in the scriptures. You know, Jesus enlisted many women for the work of the ministry. Jesus had very personal relationships with women. He had a lot of women friends. In fact, you may remember the scene where Lazarus dies. So Lazarus' sisters are Mary and Martha. Lazarus dies. And remember Martha comes out almost to correct Jesus and says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, no woman in that culture would ever talk to any man that way, let alone master, rabbi, savior, Lord, and God. And that was the kind of relationship that Martha had with Jesus. They were friends. Jesus called his disciples friends, and he treated women that way as well. So he really changed the landscape along those lines. I also want to add one other point to that as well. I don't know that it's something that we could say that God is a, a gender being of the male sex per se in the way that we think about it. The Bible speaks in human language so that we as humans can understand. But the idea behind depicting him as a he or as a father, I think more than identifying gender has more to do with identifying his personality. Because a father in the Jewish culture, of course, he set the stage for everyone else. He set the page and the pace for everyone and everything in and around the home. Whereas all of the phony gods Dagon and Baal and the idols, all of the personalities behind those gods, even Islam itself, the God of Allah, the lowercase g, God of Allah, behind those idols were uh, distant, aloof, non-personal gods. Whereas God our Father is very personal, very close, and very involved in our lives. Something important to remember. Now, again, Paul is answering questions. In a section of this text in which he's answering questions, 
questions that the Corinthians had of him that, you know, he is talking about that are, you know, relevant in a way to their culture and not as relevant to ours. In other words, they asked him, well, can we eat meat offered up to idols? And this morning he's going to say, is it proper for a woman to pray or prophesy in church without having her head covered? Again, at first glance, you would say, wait a minute, what does that have to do with us? But Paul is using these questions that may be relative to their uh, culture as a platform to establish principles that we can apply to every scenario that we uh, deal with in our lives today. So if you are at all familiar with this chapter, chapter 11, then you know that Paul is specifically addressing the situation with the women. Now, I think you'll notice as we go, he's not really talking to the women. He's talking to the church about the women and the culture within Corinth in order to draw upon a principle that applies in a timeless way to every single generation. So again, we're gonna see a specific scenario which shows that God cares about every detail of our corporate worship, that he would lay on the Apostle Paul's heart an issue that the Apostle Paul would address, but it takes backseat, I believe, to the predominant principle that, again, I think is timeless in its application and very, very appropriate. In fact, one of the most important principles that the church needs in the world today, whether you're male or female, Jew or Gentile, you're a bond servant, you have a strong or weak conscience, I think the Apostle Paul has been trying to establish something very clearly over the last few chapters, which is we should be willing to curtail, subject, submit our freedoms, our liberties, anything for the sake of our witness and the testimony of Jesus Christ and what he's done in our lives. So let's take a look here. He says in verse two, he says, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now in this instance, the word traditions there just refers to teachings. Oftentimes Jesus would blast the religious leaders for holding up man's traditions above the word of God. But remember in this instance, the New Testament is not fully put together yet at this point. So they have to rely on the things that um, Paul had already taught them in the church. And he says that he praised them for doing that. And I don't think he's being sarcastic because if you go down to verse 17, and we won't get there this morning, but he says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. So I do think what he's saying as he starts off is you've done a good job for the most part as it relates to teaching the things that I've taught you, doctrinally speaking, you've been spot on, you've been good, I praise you in that. But here was an area where there was some confusion, verse three, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now this used to be a hotly debated topic in the church for many, many years. Thankfully now it's been settled by and large by the church and others who've come to the, the conclusion that the Apostle Paul was wrong. Um, but they're wrong. And there's nothing wrong with an authority structure that God has established. In fact, it's the um, idea here of headship, authority. God would be the father, the first, and then the son, second, and then man, or um, the husband in a relationship would be third, and then the wife would be fourth. 
Now, this is one of the best, I think, examples in scripture for establishing this principle. And the reason why is it tells us something very important about the way that God sees a woman or the way that God sees any person for that matter that falls under some kind of human authority. And that is that God's call upon a person's life it, to be under authority does not in any way suggest inferiority. And the reason I say that is because notice that he says the head of Christ is God or God the Father. Yet Jesus Christ was inferior to God the Father in no way. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. They are the same. They're of same substance, identical. Yet when it came to Jesus Christ's authority, Philippians chapter 2 says, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus Christ voluntarily took a position of submission in going to the cross to die for our sins and aren't you glad but i'll give you an even better example of just how humble jesus christ is in my favorite example in all of the scriptures of the concept of humility and submission is luke chapter 2. in luke chapter 2 this is the only story we have of jesus christ as a youth we have his birth, and then we have him show up at about age 30, and pretty much nothing in between except Luke chapter 2. You may know the story. His family comes for the Passover to Jerusalem, and they all left the Passover after the feast was over. And you know, they traveled in large groups for those kinds of things, and they headed back home and discovered that Jesus wasn't with them. And you can only imagine Mary and Joseph having this discussion about how they lost God somewhere along the way, right? So they got to rush back to the temple. And what do they do? They find Jesus. Where is he? He's in the temple, amazing the scholars. Now, if you remember in Luke 2, Mary almost scolds Jesus. She's like, what did you think you were doing? You had your father and I anxious there in Luke 2. And Jesus just said something like, well, didn't you know that you would find me in my father's house? But then the next verse says, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. Jesus Christ submitted to his earthly parents whom he created. So it's pretty hard, even though I know this concept for some that are new to the church is difficult. I know it's totally countercultural. I know it flies in the face of what people will try to say in the world today, but anyone who says that they will not submit or subject themselves to an authority has a real problem when they consider that Christ was someone who was willing to do so, very much so, even to his own earthly, fleshly, sinful parents. Now, frankly, I would have a much tougher time and you may think it's easier for me to say this because I'm a man, but I would have a much tougher time submitting to a God that didn't give us order and understanding a God that didn't give us order. Hey, you know what, in marriage, just duke it out, you know? Whoever yells the loudest or bluffs the best wins the fight. I'm gonna divorce you if you proceed with those plans. Okay, don't divorce me, okay, you win. You know, if we didn't have an ultimate authority in the church, 
in the home, if God didn't give us instructions, it would be chaotic. As, as many relationships are and many churches are in the world today. So I actually don't have a problem with it. In fact, the concept of submission itself is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing when you get it, when you understand it. It's very godly. It's not very earthly. It's not held up in high esteem in this world we live in today, even though it's practiced every single day in corporate America. Think about it for a second. You ever believed that you had better skills, were harder working, or even smarter than your boss at work? Come on. You probably have thought that way before, and yet you, that didn't give you the right to just blow off what they said or do something contrary to what they asked of you. There may even be pastors in our church that you think you're more spiritual than, and you might be more spiritual than, but then that would be all the more reason why you would be willing to submit yourself because that's what Jesus Christ set the example in along those lines. Undoubtedly, there are wives in our church body that are superior to their husbands in many ways, in abilities, in intellect. They may even be more spiritual than their husbands. And I'm not just saying that hypothetically because I know some of the married couples in our church. And yet they will still listen to what God says here because God has established a hierarchical structure of authority that is not based on superiority or inferiority for that matter. It's just the way that he does it. So he says, verse four, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about here? Okay, I have no idea, so we're just going to move on to verse 7. I mean, if you don't you know, you don't know. I'm not going to stand up here and fake it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> But culturally, here's the deal, culturally in Corinth, for a person to walk around with a covering over their head meant that they were under authority of someone, of a head, of their husband. And that's why culturally in Corinth, the husbands didn't wear head coverings. But in that culture, all of the women did. The only women that didn't wear head coverings, or the only females that didn't wear head coverings in that culture were either girls that were not of age, they weren't of marriable age, or they were prostitutes. They were loose women basically letting people know that they were available. Now today, that is not our culture in America. If a woman, and I don't see one here this morning, so we're okay, but if a woman were wearing a hat here this morning, it would have nothing to do with submission or headship at all. Wait, there is one hat, sorry. <laughs> People were laughing and they drew me to the hat. But in our culture, that has nothing to do with submission or subjection. It means that that woman just likes wearing a hat and there's nothing wrong with wearing a hat. Today, our tradition in our culture is we wear what? Wedding rings. And both the men and the women wear wedding rings. Now remember, if we were to flip-flop this and we were 2,000 years ago and Paul was writing to us, he'd be talking to us about wearing wedding rings. And they would think it just as bizarre 
to go, what are they talking, what are wedding rings? What are they talking about? They would think it just as bizarre, but it is applicable. It is very similar. And in fact, our culture has less respect for a wedding ring. I mean, people will approach someone, walk right up to someone with a wedding ring in our culture. They wouldn't think twice about it. Some of you probably know what that's like. But in that culture, that was not the case. If a woman was wearing a head covering, that meant she was spoken for and that she was absolutely off limits. And yet, some of these women in Corinth, okay, like we've seen in other chapters, their thought is, hey, all things are lawful, right? I'm born again now, I'm free in Christ. Show me where it says in the Bible I have to wear a head covering. And so they were taking off their head coverings and they're sending a mixed message accordingly. It'd be kind of like, let's say, some of you ladies wanted to go up to the city and have a ladies' night out, okay? And then choosing to take off your wedding rings before you went up for your ladies' night out. That would be to open up yourself to be completely misunderstood in every way. In fact, a true story heard about two women missionaries who were in a foreign country one time, and they were doing some work there, and they had a tradition every morning where they got up at the wee bit, I mean dark outside hours, to get up, have coffee, and do their devotions out on the veranda in this country that was, I don't know the name of the country, but it was of Middle Eastern influence. And for two years, they spent in that country with zero fruit. I mean, no one would even talk to them until one day somebody pulled them aside in the market and said, did you know that the only people that are even up that time in the morning that are drinking a hot beverage out on the veranda are the prostitutes in town? Did you know that? And of course they didn't know that. And so they changed everything that they did to try and clean things up and change the impression that people had formed about them based upon their culture. So there's an admonition in part, and it's fair for us to be culturally sensitive. But there's a difference between cultural sensitivity and cultural relativity. Paul is only addressing cultural relatives in order to draw out absolute principles. The particular issues, eating meat offered up to idols, head coverings, wedding rings, uh, hats or not hats, or um, stockings we talked about a few weeks ago, those particulars are only culturally relative. But the principles that he's been talking about over the last few weeks of giving way, of here, spiritual headship, of submitting to one another in the fear of God, those things are timeless truths and they apply to every generation and every culture, biblically speaking. So what Paul is essentially saying to them is, hey, what good reason would you have for refusing to remove or for refusing to wear your head covering when you know that in that culture in Corinth, that tells everybody you're available when you're not available and that dishonors your head or your husband. It's shameful to your husband to do that. And again, what Paul does here is he brings us back. He's saying, I'm not creating some random deal here. I'm going all the way back to Genesis, to the book of Genesis, to see God's created order in establishing this truth. He says in verse 7, look, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. 
For man is not from woman, but woman from man, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Now, ladies, let me tell you, just for a second, hold on, I'm gonna get to the men in a little while, okay? But he starts off by saying, make it very, very clear here that the created order is such that Adam was made from the dust of the ground. Eve was not made from the dust of the ground. Eve was made from the side, from the rib of Adam. And what he's saying is from the book of Genesis, God has created an order, an authority, and that is applicable today. That's timeless. That has nothing to do with culture. In fact, one of the most debated verses in the New Testament is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul said, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the church. Now, women teach and have authority in many ways within the church, but he was saying a woman is not supposed to be principally the teacher of men. That's not principally what a woman is supposed to be doing. That role goes to men. Women should be teaching children. Women should be teaching other women, but not men. Now, a lot of people will look at a verse like that, and they will say, even commentators will say, well, that was Paul just speaking to the church in Ephesus, just speaking to the women in Ephesus. And that cannot be true because the very next verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2, after he says, and I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So why would God tell the women in Ephesus that they ought not to be teaching the men in the church because Adam was formed first and then Eve? There's no way that he would do that. It wouldn't make any sense. And so obviously, the principle of order has nothing to do with the culture of either Ephesus or Corinth. And so he says in verse 10, for this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now he had us all the way until he got to that point, right? <laughs> you, you got, that's obvious, right? She ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Let's just move on. There's no, nothing even to talk about along those lines. There are all kinds of theories as to what this means, and I'm gonna try as best I can just to simplify it and tell you what I think it means. You're free to disagree with me if you don't think that this is the proper interpretation here, but this is what I believe he's saying as it relates to authority. The angels are a perfect picture of extreme subordination, right? They are the example to us along those lines. And I believe they're pretty sensitive as it relates to God's hierarchy, as it relates to God's order. Why? Because they saw one third of their angelic buddies fall and ultimately be damned because one of them led a bunch of them to try and mess with God's order mess with God's hierarchy in trying to become God himself. And sadly, there are so many people today that will do the same thing, that will sentence themselves to eternal separation from God because they do not want to go along with God's plan. They don't like God's plan. They won't submit. They won't submit to anyone. They won't submit to a parent. They won't submit to a spouse, a pastor, police officer, 
political official, you name it, they don't want to submit to anyone. As C.S. Lewis said, you can take every single person in the world and put them in one of two categories. Either they're a person of which looks up to God and says, thy will be done, or at some point they're a person that God looks down at and says, all right, thy will be done, ultimately. And that's the sad reality. And that, by the way, is sort of the overarching theme that Paul's getting at here. Don't forget that he's not really, again, as you look at this, talking to the women. He's talking to the church about a particular issue. And the overarching issue is submission or subjection. And Ephesians 5 encourages us to be submitting to one another in the fear of God. And one of the implications of that is that even in marriage, husbands need to be willing to give way from time to time, and especially within the church body. And that's one of the implications here. Look at verse 11. It says, nevertheless, even though he's been establishing this principle, nevertheless, neither is man independent or woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. So how is man not independent of woman? What is he saying here? And I'll give you two reasons. I could give you several, but I'll give you two reasons as to why and how man is not independent of the Lord. And the first one is, again, you go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33, very well-known passage of Scripture speaking of the role of husband and wife in marriage. And yes, the wife is called to submit to her husband ultimately. Husband and wife have a tough decision to make. They get together, they talk about it, they pray about it. Somebody's got to make a judgment call. Somebody's got to make a judgment call, ultimately. But, so the wife is called to submit. Yes, that's true. So the wife is made for the husband, that's true. But in that same passage of scripture, the husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now I ask you to consider which one of those two things is harder. Think about it for a second. Now I know I'm being as empathetic as I can with the women here, it's difficult to swallow your pride and say, okay, honey, if you think that that's best, let's do it your way. But is it not harder to love your wife as Christ loved the church, men? Because you're not even capable of that kind of love. I mean, at times you are, but you're gonna fail in that miserably. That's a huge goal, agape love, sacrificial love, laying down your life for your wife. That's as strong, if not a stronger exhortation to the men as it is for the women to submit. They're called to lay down their life, if so, willingly to subject themselves to even submit, if need be, for the betterment of their marriage. That's what a husband is called to do, to be like Christ and how they love their wife. But also consider reason number two, it's a very simple one in verse 12. He says, for as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. So that's the other reason it's pretty simple, right? God has forever established the importance of the role of women and the fact that men are not independent of women by virtue of the fact that man comes from woman. And without woman, there would be no men, right? 
And so God has made those two things very clear. Men are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. They're to give themselves sacrificially with agape love. And also remember that, well, we all have moms. And I don't care what the tabloid magazines say, there's only one way for a baby to come into this world, and that is through a woman. No matter what you've heard or read or whatever the case may be, okay? And he finishes up here. He says, judge amongst yourselves, verse 13. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Let me just make one quick comment about that before we wrap up here with the last verse. This is not, I don't think in any way, saying that any man who has long hair, and again, I'm doing a quick survey around the room, I don't want to offend anybody, but this does not mean, I mean, long and short are also relative terms, okay? You know, Samson at one point had long hair. Paul had long hair. George Washington had long hair, I think. Most of the founding fathers. But in virtually every culture in the world throughout the beginning of time, men have traditionally wore their hair shorter than women. Okay, and let me just also clarify that he says here that nature testifies. Not that God says it's sinful, not that nature even says it's sinful, but that nature testifies that men ought to have shorter hair than women, relatively speaking. What is he saying? Ultimately, knowing what we would be facing, knowing the culture they were living in at that time, knowing the culture that we're living in today, I think this, here's the principle. Men ought to look like men and women ought to look like women. Okay? So a man can have a little longer hair than what you would expect and still look like a man. And a woman can have short hair and still look like a woman. But blurring the lines of distinction is something that our world is very into today in order to justify every kind of lifestyle that there is. And by the way, that's what the prostitutes in Corinth did. They shaved their heads, which is what he was talking about earlier. They shaved their heads or cut them really, really, really short for that very reason. He says, though, last verse, but if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. In other words, this is a Corinth thing, the head covering. This is no such custom in the other churches that I have to make these kinds of commandments, but I am going to work within your custom to give you this counsel. So again, in our church today, what would God say? He would say, look, don't be contentious about this. If the culture dictates that you wear a wedding ring, then you ought to wear a wedding ring. Think about this for a second now. I mean, I had a couple come to me not too long ago. I'm doing marriage counseling for them right now. And they said, you know, we don't see wedding rings anywhere in the Bible, so we're not gonna wear wedding rings. We're not even gonna get wedding rings. And I'm like, okay, I understand where you're coming from along those lines. I understand what you're saying, except that the culture expects that you wear wedding rings, and there's nothing anti-biblical about wearing a wedding ring, so you might want to pray about that and think about that and really strongly consider if it's worth using that as a, some, a conversation starter for people that you don't wear wedding rings on when that is the culture of the day. In all of this, though, one of the very interesting words that's in that very last verse is the word contentious. Paul says, if anyone is contentious, and that's really the problem in Corinth in general. 
is a lot of people that are contentious. And hence why we have this ongoing, overall, predominant theme that we need to give way, that we need to forego, that we need to not insist, that we need to submit, that we need to subject ourselves. In fact, Ephesians 5 verse 21, talking about submitting to one another, its immediate context is talking about within the church body. And I'll tell you what, one of the most important things and lessons that we can learn as a church family is that we need to give way. We need to back off. We need to not insist upon our way. Think about it. Ultimately, when Paul was addressing factions in the Corinthians, when he was addressing them suing each other and taking each other to court, when he was talking about insisting upon aiding meat offered up to idols, even though that would stumble someone else, and now when he's talking about women refusing to wear head coverings, what is he ultimately talking about? Submission. Let it go. It's not worth it. It's not worth your witness. It's not worth your testimony. Now I want to challenge you on a very personal level here because it's applicable in my own life. But you go back and you look at all your relationships, your friendships, family members, the people that you knew in the church that God used in a mighty way. Now you ask yourself in the privacy of your own heart, if any of those relationships are broken today, distant, people that you were once really close with that now you are not. Okay, and probably every single person in this room would say yes, there is. Now let me ask you a question, a follow-up question to that. If you had to do it over again, would you just rather given way? Would you have rather just have gone back and said, you know what, it's not worth it. You're right, I'm sorry. If you had to do it over again. And I think as we go forward as a church, that that's going to be here. This is going to be the ongoing thing because he's going to continue next week to talk about the agape feasts, problems with disorder in the agape feast. Then he's going to talk about spiritual gifts. They're arguing about who has the best spiritual gifts. And his same thing is, well, why are you being contentious amongst each other? It could cost each other relationships, and ultimately it could cause someone to stumble, and ultimately someone doesn't come to the Lord. So the context is head coverings for women. But what is he really talking about? Submission. And why is he really talking about submission? Because of our witness. And why is he really talking about our witness? Because the goal is that people come to Christ. And we don't want people to stumble because Christians can't get along. And when Christians can't get along, when a church is feuding, when a family is having problems, that's not very attractive to an unbelieving community around that family. And so my exhortation for me, for us today, is we just give way. We don't insist upon it being our way. No one has to consult me or you on how they're going to do things. Let's just trust God and let's just submit to one another in the fear of God. Lord, thank you for uh, this church family and the way that they do conduct themselves along those lines. And we thank you that you're a God who sent his son that submitted himself to the cross and he set a perfect example for us and Lord who are we to be unwilling to budge or give way when your son did who are we to 
hold on or cling to our rights to be right. When your son was there on that cross, nailed to that cross, and allowed people to think whatever they wanted. And he allowed them even to feel justified in their cursing of him for our sake. And so, God, if your son, if Jesus Christ, if he would go to the cross and allow people to think that he was a criminal of the worst kind, Lord, then we should be willing to fall on our sword. We should be willing to humble ourselves, whatever it takes, that the the people around us see this is a close-knit family, a loving family, humbled and submitted to one another for the sake of your witness, Lord, and who you are and what you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name.